So here we go. Um, our next category is restrictive lung disorders. So <laughs> in the last category was obstructive, and the similarity between all of them, although there were a lot of kind of different ones and causes, was that there was obstruction of an airway of some kind. So this is different. Um, this is a restriction of the, of the uh, lung expansion. Okay, so overall you're losing uh, the, the um, capacity of the lungs to, to, uh, to expand. So we basically have <coughs> two categories of disorders that can cause an impairment of the lungs to expand. So the first one is basically structural or paralysis type of problems, and the second one is fibrotic, so inflammatory, scar tissue-y change in size. So let's kind of separate those out. Um, the first group of uh, kyphosis or scoliosis, okay? So those are structural issues. What, what do those words mean? What's a kyphosis? And really, we all have a kyphosis, right? The way that your, your thoracic spine curves this way is a kyphosis. What's really talking about is hyperkyphosis. So if someone is stuck like this, it's going to impair their the ability of their ribcage to expand. So can anybody think of anything that could lead to that kind of a thing to develop? How can, how can someone who has a, a pretty you know, normal spine, as they get later in life, start looking like this? Second. Um, it's part of it, but not really the reason why you get that real hunchback kind of appearance. <coughs> I'll give you a hint. Uh, most typical population you're looking at developing that <coughs> is in older females. <coughs> Sorry? And subsequent, what about osteoporosis? If your bones get less dense, that's not going to necessarily change your shape, except that. I'm sorry? Go ahead, guess. Uh, no, not quite. <coughs> Compression fractures. So, one of the reasons, I mean, weakness in uh, the muscles is one. But one of, the weak, one of the reasons why grandma starts to look like this is because as she gets older, she can accumulate compression fractures in the spine with fairly minimal trauma, right? It can happen just from regular activity. So if the vertebrae of your spine are normally supposed to look kind of like this, they're more or less stacked blocks, and a compression fracture in the spine usually creates a, what's called a wedge deformity. So it wedges it anteriorly like so, it kind of collapses. So if you can imagine this, and that, now all of a sudden you've got this permanent bend forward. Does that make sense? So, um, <coughs> somewhat common that way. Scoliosis, what's a scoliosis? An S shape, right? So that's, um, that's always abnormal. Uh, it doesn't mean that, it's a longer discussion, we'll actually talk about it in MSK. But uh, basically you have an S shaped curve to the spine. To the thing to remember here is that when you get lateral curvatures, like so, you also get twisting and humping of the rib cage, And so you can get impairment of the, of the lung expansion that way. The rest of those disorders on that list all relate uh, to the theme of some kind of paralysis. So polio, what kind of, how do you get polio? What kind of disorder is it? Sorry? It's a viral infection. Good. Okay. Uh, and it causes paralysis. ALS. That's a degenerative. Uh, it's a neurodegenerative disorder, right? Uh, that causes paralysis. Uh, muscular dystrophy. How do you how do you get muscular muscular dystrophy? It's an infection. Is it degenerative? Is it 
It's congenital. That's right? a genetic disorder. Genetic disorder. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, the people that uh, that uh, have common forms of muscular dystrophy, like Duchenne's, again a topic for another class, um, will uh, unfortunately the, the reason they end up dying early is because of uh, uh, paralysis of muscles that uh, that are responsible for respiration. Uh, and botulism. <coughs> uh, how do you get? Well, what kind of how, what kind of disorder is botulism? It is. It's a bacterial infection. Good. Uh, and again, causes, it is spore, exactly. That causes, uh, significant, it can cause significant paralysis. Okay? Uh, dosage depends on obviously how big you are. This is the reason, by the way, that you don't give a child under one year old honey because it's known to have some botulism spores in it. Right? And as an adult, you can handle it, but uh, unless the dosage is really significant. But as a young child, it can be fatal. Um, same, uh, same bacteria, by the way, this is where Botox comes from, right? Botulism toxin. You take those bacteria, that they're, the toxic effect of the, of the toxin they release is paralysis. You take it, you harvest it, you inject it into spots in your face that you want to have uh, less wrinkles, right? You basically want to paralyze the muscles locally. Anyway, so all those are going to give the possibility of, of impairing expansion of the lungs. <coughs> the second group uh, is in, more internal. So your things that are causing fibrotic scar tissue change uh, development inside the lungs and impairing their expansion. And that kind of leads us to the next topic, which is pneumoconiosis. So these are our occupational diseases that you saw kind of highlighted down here. So let's hash that out a little bit. <coughs> so pneumoconiosis are a group of restrictive diseases, and the common element is that you are inhaling some kind of irritant on a chronic basis, and it's something that is not supposed to be in your lungs, and the nature of it getting into your lungs is it causes inflammatory damage. You're inhaling it usually, again, chronically over and over. Uh, and so you continue to add on this inflammatory damage. And your body's eventual <coughs> response to that recurrent damage is scar tissue. And when you, when you start filling up lung tissue with scar tissue, it's not elastic anymore. It doesn't stretch. And so all of a sudden, it can't expand. So it's considered a restrictive disorder. And the, I'm sure you'll have heard of a few of these. We'll get to the list in the next slide. Um, but they are typically insidious. So they don't, you don't wake up one day with pneumoconiosis. Um, it's chronic recurrent exposure for the most part. Uh, and so the development of the signs and symptoms is fairly slow as well. So it usually starts with a shortness of breath. It gets worse and worse and worse. Um, there is no real way to, to reverse the damage that's done. Uh, so the, the way to manage this is uh, ending immediately your exposure to whatever the, the irritant is, and we'll see the, the list of those shortly, uh, and then treating, you know, supportive care, treating infection, managing, uh, um, you know, supportive care and that kind of stuff. So here are kind of the, the common ones. And again, you'll probably re re recognize a few of these. Um, first one would be anthracosis. Right? Anthracosis is coal workers' disease, a.k.a. the black lung. So that's inhalation of coal dust. So it's a fine particulate that coal miners are exposed to and they're in the mines. They breathe it in. It causes damage to the lung tissue, and over time it causes fibrotic change and eventual, you know, eventual pulmonary failure. <coughs> Silicosis, right? Silica is a makeup of sand. Uh, and so inhalation of, of fine sand particles, so things like, again, miners, um, sand blasters, which use sand to, uh, to uh, cut rock and stuff, and, and stone cutting. Uh, I'm going to skip asbestosis for a second. Uh, farmer's lung. 
uh, is um, from inhalation of uh, uh, fungal spores, uh, most typically found in wet hay. Okay. And then the last one is asbestosis. I'm certain you've heard of asbestos. Okay. Uh, somewhat I've found it over the years people have a misunderstanding of what asbestos are. So what, what is or what are asbestos? We all know they're bad, right? You don't want to breathe them in. For a few other reasons, it can also cause uh, lung cancers and mesothelioma and those kinds of things too. But what is it? Right. So it was definitely it was used in decades past for insulation because it's a uh, it's an excellent insulator and it happens to be highly fire retardant, which made it. Hey, it's a great idea. Except that we found that when you inhale it, then you get all sorts of nastiness. Uh, uh, in form of lung diseases. But what is it? Is it or is it is it living? Is it or is it organic? Is it what is it? It's a common misconception. Right? So uh, let's take that one. That is asbestos. Asbestos is a mineral. Yeah, it's mined. Okay, so it looks like this, and if I can get a better, uh, better picture, this is what it looks like if you look at it under a microscope. <laughs> so you can imagine probably now that at microscopic level, you start inhaling these guys. It's, they look like little needles, right? And so it's going to cause inflammatory dam tissue damage to the lungs. Okay, so back to you know where you find it and stuff. It is an excellent insulator, so it was used in insulation of homes and, and building ships and those kinds of things. So um, it was banned. The, the use of asbestos in those, in those, uh, um, uh, for those purposes was banned in many, many countries, including Canada, uh, several decades ago, I believe in the 70s, maybe slightly later. Uh, does anybody know, um, is our asbestos still used? Well, sort of. Uh, Canada still mined asbestos until about six months ago, in Quebec mostly, uh, and we shipped it to countries that didn't have those rules. So developing countries like India, where they didn't have they didn't have regulations on asbestos, and until I used to. So I'll give you this, so the timeline. So I used to teach this class, and I asked that question, you know, four or five years ago, and the answer is they're still mining it and shipping it overseas. Uh, but about six or eight months ago, we finally banned uh, the, the, the production or the mining of asbestos. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you're so inclined, I won't go too deep into this, but um, there are, there, if you have a house uh, that was built in a particular set of decades, 50s to 70s-ish, um, there is reason to suspect that there may have been asbestos used in insulation, uh, either in the walls or in the ceiling or both. Um, and so if you have, uh, there are still issues with, if you're renovating a house from that era, um, you do need to be cautious and, and if you have any suspicion, then you basically want to not disturb it at all. It won't bother you unless you disturb it and it becomes airborne and you can inhale it. Uh, but if, that, if it is present, then you're going to need specialized, quite frankly, expensive uh, <laughs> uh, people to come in uh, and, uh, and safely dispose of it. There was a thing on CBC uh, a couple months ago now. Um, there was a, was an old 
GE plant in Peterborough, um, and they were, you know, they, part of their production, what they were doing, they had made a bunch of asbestos as a byproduct, or they were using it for something, and then um, they had uh, workers go up into the air ducts and clean it all out. Right? Obviously, at this time, they didn't know how dangerous it was, so they're up there crawling around, bagging this stuff up, and putting ads in the papers. They basically like free or super cheap asbestos. Get take it off our hands, use it for your house, and so it was used all over the local area for insulation. And they're still having issues cleaning it all up to this day. Anyway, <clears throat> okay. Any questions about the pneumoconioses? Make sure that you know uh, which one causes which. I can pretty much guarantee there'll be a question about that on your test. Last, uh, almost last, sorry. Uh, next uh, topic is vascular disorders. So we kind of talked, we kind of touched on this a little bit previously, uh, the concept of pulmonary edema, but let's dig in a little more. So should there normally be fluid in the air spaces of the alveoli? Of course not, okay? Uh, not, or not any significant amount. So when you accumulate watery fluid in the alveolar air spaces, uh, that's pulmonary edema. Any, any fluid that, ha that ends up in the alveoli effectively came from the surrounding tissue, right? So you can imagine that, as all inflammation does, uh, it starts in the interstitial space, and then it starts to migrate as fluid pressure kind of builds up, and in this case, it, it moves into whatever is adjacent, which happens to be the alveolar air spaces. <laughs> so that causes some problems. Uh, of course, you don't want fluid in the lungs because now you've, you're, you're, um, it's an increased barrier for gas exchange to have to cross, and so it's an inefficiency there. Um, you can also, if there's enough of it, you can dilute down your surfactant to the point where it doesn't work anymore and it, the air spaces can collapse. So there's a whole bunch of problems there. Um, now, how do you get it? <laughs> this is the bigger question because there are a lot of things that can cause pulmonary edema. <clears throat> so some straightforward ones. Um, inflammation. That hopefully makes sense. There's some kind of inflammatory uh, irritant in the lungs, whether it's uh, from an aspirate, so you uh, aspirate something, or, uh, or some other kind of uh, infection, or uh, some other kind of cause of inflammation, that is reasonable that this could occur as a side effect. The other one is one we've talked about already too. <clears throat> That's pulmonary hypertension. So uh, increased pressure of the blood vessels of the lungs themselves. And the examples we used before, or we talked about previously, um, are um, congestive heart failure. Okay, Which side, left or right? Left, good, right? Remember that, that fluid backs up to prior to where the failure is. And so you have essentially congestion of the blood vessels uh, from, uh, in the lungs from the failure of the left side, and they start to expand, and then fluid starts to migrate out, and then you end up with edema. All right. Uh, there is also a discussion of this in our COPD. So your emphysema, your chronic bronchitis, as you cause fibrotic tissue, uh, fibrotic damage and, and tissue destruction in the lungs, you're also destroying blood vessels, which means you're losing cross-sectional area of blood vessels. The pressure starts to build up in those that remain, and fluid can migrate out into air spaces. Okay. <clears throat> the last one is something that may not jump out at you. Uh, so, and I didn't teach you patho one, so we'll see where you're at with this. Low plasma protein levels. Which pl which protein in particular? Say it again. Good, albumin. Okay, so albumin is largely responsible for the plasma osmotic pressure. 
right? So the osmotic pressure of blood plasma, which basically means the attractive force that keeps fluid in a container. And this container, in this case, is the blood vessels. So if you don't have sufficient albumin in your blood, then there is not that attractive force to keep fluid in the vessels, and it tends to leak out. Okay, and it can, that can occur anywhere throughout the body. One of the places it can affect is the lungs. Now the question is, how do you get that? Do you have any concept of some possibilities of how you can have low blood uh, albumin levels? Because there's a handful of reasons. All right. Uh, what is albumin made of? It's a protein. Okay. So how do you? Uh, so where do you? Where does your body make it? In the liver. Good. So, liver disease. Right. So uh, cirrhosis or uh, hepatic carcinoma, liver, liver cancer, or chronic uh, hepatitis. Things like that would reasonably impair the liver's ability to make albumin. And if it can't do that, then it won't be there. And so you can end up with edema, right? Not just in the lungs, but in other spaces like the abdomen or in the, in the, in the, uh, in the skull or in the periphery and other places as well. So when the liver is building albumin, right, proteins are made out of the building blocks of called, what are the building blocks of protein? Amino acids, good. And where do you get amino acids from? The food you eat, good. Okay, which means that you have to eat protein in order to have amino acids in your bloodstream that get transported to the liver that get used for these things. What am I getting at? Malnutrition, good. Okay, so malnutrition can be a cause. So starvation can be a cause uh, of uh, of edema, not just in the lungs, elsewhere as well. <laughs> We've all seen the. Sad commercials with the starving children, right? Yes? I know you've seen it. It's got the sad, like, Sarah McLaughlin music, whatever it is. Okay, so what do they look like? Yeah, so, so they're very, very skinny, right? Uh, and they have a, a distended abdomen. So what's happening there? They've been, they've been starving, and usually when you're starving, the hardest macronutrient to get, quite frankly, is our amino acids. It's protein. It's just... It's just it's the hardest thing to acquire in, diet, uh, in your diet. So when you run out of that in your diet, your body will start taking it from elsewhere. So it starts breaking down your own proteins. It starts harvesting it for building blocks because there's certain things that you just need to make, like albumin, like uh, you know, any other proteins that your liver makes, a um, whole bunch of things. So what's with the belly? Is it fat? It's fluid. There's a name for that. Ascites. Good. Okay. So ascites means fluid accumulation in the abdomen. And again, same reason. that They are so deficient in protein, their liver can't make albumin. And so the, the osmotic pressure of, of blood plasma is not there. And so fluid leaks out into places like the abdomen. All right. <coughs> uh, we'll run into that uh, idea again in other units. Uh, anyway, so if you have from any of those causes uh, fluid accumulation in the lungs, the things that you would ex the signs that you would expect are things we've already learned about. Um, a cough 
and rails. There's fluid in the lungs. That's an, that's an irritant. So it's, your body's going to want to get rid of it. If you were to listen with a stethoscope, you would hear crackling noises. What's orthopnea again? Ortho refers to a position. Good. So they go horizontal, and the, the dyspnea gets worse because fluid is spreading out. You get increased vascular return to the lungs. You get more congestion. Uh, and hemoptysis. So the presence of the fluid in the air spaces by itself uh, can cause bleeding, and so if that person coughs it up, it's going to be this frothy, bubbly, blood-tinged sputum. So how do you treat pulmonary edema? Well, it entirely depends on the cause. Right? I just gave you a whole bunch of very different causes. We have liver disease. We have infection. We have uh, aspiration. We have um, starvation. I mean, those are all very different. So you treat the cause to the extent possible. Uh, and manage, you know, uh, uh, manage supportive care in the meantime. That makes sense. All right. <coughs> uh, this is just showing um, in a diagram the uh, the effect of high, high uh, hydrostatic pressure, so increased blood pressure in the pulmonary vasculature. So this is something like your um, left-sided congestive heart failure that backs up fluid into, the, uh, into the, the vessels of the lungs, gives you pulmonary hypertension, and then the pressure is, the hydrostatic pressure, the fluid force is so high that the fluid starts squeezing out into the interstitium, and then to its next door neighbor, which is the air spaces. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Very good. Next, still in the vascular disorder section, uh, let's talk about emboli. So what is an, uh, what's an embolus? It's, yeah, it's sort of. It's a, a, a thromboembolus is, is that. An embolus is a free-floating piece of something that is moving through the blood vessels and can cause a blockage. So you can have fat emboli, you can have air emboli, but here we're talking mostly about uh, thromboemboli, so a piece that breaks off of a clot uh, and then it ends up somewhere else. So 90% of pulmonary emboli are going to be from thromboemboli, pieces that have brought, broken off of clots, from DVTs, so deep vein thromboses, pl blood clots in the legs, in the, in, the, in the veins, the deep veins of the calf and the popliteal vein behind the knee. Okay? There are other places as well but, uh, that it can come from, but that's by far the most common. So um, can, this come from, uh, can this come from the arterial system? Can this come from the same thing that causes a, st a stroke uh, or things like that? Uh, okay, so half of your answer is right. You said yes because of blood flow, and I'm going to say it's no because of blood flow. All right, so here's where I need you to understand your anatomy. All right, so um, let's say, so let's talk DVTs. So um, let's say you have a, a thrombus, a clot in, the, in a, vein, a deep vein of a leg, and a piece breaks off, and it's going to start moving. And it's going to flow one direction as, blood as you do in blood vessels uh, and only in one direction until it gets to wherever it gets stuck. So think of the anatomy of what, what's involved here. You've got smaller-ish veins in the legs, which as it travels up, right, back towards the heart, it gets into larger and larger uh, veins, right? It's going to end up in the inferior vena cava, right, because it comes from below the diaphragm. Uh, and then it ends up in what part of the heart? I know it's early. You have to know this. The right 
atrium, and then it goes to the right ventricle, and then it goes to the pulmonary trunk, and then it's, the pulmonary trunk is a big artery that leaves the left, right ventricle, and it starts breaking off into smaller and smaller and smaller vessels as it travels through the pulmonary arteries into the lungs. So you have a clot that's going into big vessels, free mo motion, no problem, and then into smaller and smaller vessels as it goes into the lungs, and at some point it will get stuck. Okay? So can this cause a stroke? No. Because, yeah, exactly, it's not in the brain, and it can't get to the brain because think of the anatomy involved there. It's not reasonable that you've got a clot that makes it all the way through the tiniest capillaries of the, of the lungs, and it comes back to the left side of the heart and out to the brain. It, wouldn't, it doesn't make sense. Okay? So when you get a, uh, a, a, an occlusive stroke from a, from a thromboembolus, uh, it's usually from, well, it's always from the arterial side. Okay? Actually, the most common uh, spot it comes from is the left uh, ventricle of the heart. So you've had a previous heart attack or a, or, a, um, or a dysrhythmia of some kind, and the heart's not ejecting fully. So blood pools, and when blood pools, it clots. And then it heart ejects a piece, and it goes up, and it ends up in the brain. Okay? But it's not reasonable for DVT to end up in the brain, and vice versa. Again, think of if you had a clot on the arterial side, a thromboembolus that gets thrown, it's going to go through the, uh, the arterial system from very big aorta to smaller and smaller and smaller vessels as it hits the capillaries. There's no reasonable way that's going to make it all the way back to the lungs. Does that anatomy make sense now? Okay, good. <clears throat> so um, this is what I'm talking about when I say try not to memorize, try to understand. Right, try to understand the, the anatomy. Uh, so the effects of a pulmonary embolus are going to be entirely dependent on size and location. So think about what, you know, again, what, the, what the, the pulmonary arterial system looks like, right? You have a very, very large pulmonary trunk that leaves the right ventricle. It breaks off into left and right pulmonary arteries, and then it branches into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller vessels as it gets to the periphery of the lung tissue. Now. <coughs> Wherever it gets stuck, it gets stuck. So that depends on size and rolling the dice. So <clears throat> you could reasonably have a very small pulmonary embolus that makes it all the way to, you know, kind of periphery of the lungs, causes an obstruction, tissue damage, things that go along with it, but you might not even ever notice because it's so small, right, in comparison to the rest of the lung tissue. <clears throat> Alternatively, if you have one that's kind of maybe medium sized and it blocks somewhere in between, you might block a whole bunch of branches to a big section of the lung and now you've got a bigger problem. Or you could have something like this. There's a name for this and I don't even know if it's in your notes so you can write it down. It's called a saddle embolus. So basically it's such a large clot saddle, right, like, like on a horse that you saddle because it, it's straddling. It's basically so big that it's straddling the two main branches the left and right pulmonary arteries. What are the effects of that going to look like? Not good, right? Not good. Potentially uh, death in very short order, all right? So the effects are going to be entirely dependent on <coughs> the, the where, so the size and location. So again, considering that, depending, you know, considering that, that, that effects are going to vary, signs and symptoms that you might see, chest pain, cough, sharpness of breath, um, more significant chest pain if it's a larger embolus, um, real significant uh, uh, shortness of breath. Uh, as you would probably expect, the body's, uh, the body's um, compensation for that is going to be immediately jack up the respiratory rate, jack up the heart rate, so those are things you're going to see. Um, 
the longer it goes on, the more hypoxic the person becomes, uh, and so you're going to get more and more significant effects of that hypoxia. You might see, um, you might see bleeding uh, and coughing up of blood, so hemoptysis, blood in the sputum, because of the in inflammation and the tissue damage and the, the blood that ends up in the airways. Um, and fever, as your body, the body's immune system is trying to, to, to break down that and have its inflammatory reaction. If it's a very, very large embolus, you know, much more significant crushing chest pain that feels more like a heart attack kind of pain, um, significant drop in blood pressure, significant uh, um, loss of the strength of the pulse, loss of consciousness rather rapidly, and ultimately can be fatal. So that saddle embolus is a good example of something that can cause that. Now, how do we prevent these things? Okay, so we'll talk prevention and then we'll talk treatment. Uh, prevention is, is, is key here and we do a lot to try to manage this. Consider the cause. So 90% of these suckers come from DVTs. So try to prevent peripheral clotting, which means you have to manage certain patients. So this is exactly why, or sorry, sorry about this. Uh, what kinds of, sorry, my brain goes in different directions sometimes. What kinds of things cause clotting in the veins, right? What kinds of things lead to DVTs? Poor circulation. Poor circulation, okay, so, so um, low blood pressure, poor venous return, yeah. What else? Good, lack of mobility. Remember that, that, the, that peripheral veins, and particularly ones down in the lower extremities, they're, they're low pressure systems, right? And they rely on mechanisms to help milk the blood back towards the heart, including especially what's the most important mechanism? How does blood that's low pressure way down there get back up to the heart? The muscle pump. So as muscles contract, as muscles contract, it squeezes those veins that are adjacent. The veins have one-way valves, and you're pushing blood back up towards the heart. Okay? We also use the respiratory pump to create a negative pressure and suck blood upward as well. Uh, so to your point, you're exactly right. Somebody who is immobilized is going to be at a greater risk. This is exactly why you get patients up shortly after surgery and get them walking around to the extent possible. Right? It's because you want to prevent clotting. The same reason that, that uh, patients like that might be given uh, compression stockings, so anti-embolus stockings, to prevent fluid accumulation in the lower extremities and increase venous return. Um, and some people are going to be clot formers. Okay? So somebody who is, who's had uh, you know, an inflammatory stimulus of some kind is more likely to, to develop clots. Someone who has a history of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, things like that, are more likely to develop clots because of the pro-inflammatory environment in the blood vessels. Um, some people are just genetically clot formers, and it's it's known that if you, you know if you uh, have uh, created a, a clot to a DVT once, you're more likely to do it again. And so those types of people that are at risk are more likely to be on either. Uh, short-term or, or often long-term uh, anticoagulant medications to, to decrease the likelihood of that happening again. That all makes sense? Okay. Uh, diagnosis. So there's a bunch of things that can be used here. Uh, some interesting tests. Um, a lung scan is actually a cool test. It's basically two parts. Um, because consider what, again, remember this is not an airway issue. Right? Unless, there is, unless there becomes that way with the inflammation and the bleeding. But this is not an airway issue, this is a vascular issue. You're blocking the blood vessels inside the lungs, not the airways. 
So you basically need to uh, evaluate both the airways and the blood vessels to get a, a good idea of where the blockage is. So you basically, in a lung scan, you get two parts. One is you inhale a, um, a radioactive gas, okay? And that gives you an image. Uh, you image that and you get uh, essentially a sense of the air spaces in the lungs. And the second part is you uh, introduce a contrast agent into the blood vessels and you take a snap and image of that. And if you overlie the two, you're going to get a good visual of the lung tissue. And what you're going to look for is air spaces that exist where blood doesn't go. If that makes sense. So again, you're, again the, the problem here is a blockage of the blood flow. So, um, <clears throat> Otherwise, MRI for imaging, 3D, of course, uh, or a pulmonary angiogram. So you would have learned about coronary angiograms before, where you go in with a catheter, you introduce a contrast agent, you take images. Same kind of idea here, but obviously different blood vessels in the lungs. Uh, so treatments, uh, again, it pre uh, preferably uh, prevention as much as is possible. Um, so identifying patients at risk, uh, minimizing the immobilization, the bed rest, especially after surgery when there's been, you know, there's been work done, there's a pro-inflammatory environment uh, in the blood, uh, compression stockings. Um, if somebody is a, a really big risk and they have recurrent uh, pulmonary emboli, there is a surgery that can be done to insert what's basically like a mesh filter uh, into the um, inferior vena cava. It's going to catch those clots before they end up in the lungs. But that's an extreme example. Okay? Um, in the more acute uh, term, you're going to be talking about your, your, um, your anticoagulant meds like heparin especially uh, or streptokinase, which is a clot-busting drug. So somebody's known to have a, a, a clot, then you introduce streptokinase and, and hopefully break it down as quickly as possible. Um, embolectomy would be uh, surgical removal, so the same way you, would, you could do a pulmonary angiogram, you could go in and pluck out a, uh, um, an embolism if it's accessible. Uh, and then of course, in the meantime, supportive care, including probably uh, ventilation and airway management. Okay? Any questions? Okay, makes sense. Again, uh, every case is going to look a little bit different there depending on size and location. All right, so that's it for vascular disorders. So we move on to expansion disorders. So things that are going to impair uh, expansion of the lungs, like atelectasis. And we ran into this term last week. Atelectasis basically means collapse of airspace, collapse of lung tissue. Now that can be a very small amount of airspace, uh, so, so a small region of the lungs, or it could be an entire lung altogether. It depends on severity and it depends on the cause. As you can probably imagine, if you collapse a lung or, or a significant amount of lung tissue, that's going to impair your ability to exchange gas. We also have to remember that when you collapse lung tissue, you're not just collapsing airspace, but you're also collapsing the stuff that's in the interstitial space too, which means blood vessels. So you've got issues with both airflow and blood flow. Okay. Now let's talk about what it is that uh, that can cause that. Um, first one is obstructive atelectasis or resorption atelectasis, and this can be related back to something that we talked about, or a few things we talked about last week. So I'm going to use the example of an alveolus, but you can expand this to to, to thinking about larger and larger air spaces, okay, depending on what airway it is that you're blocking. But let's say we have, right, my still 
poorly drawn alveolus. Okay, so airway in and out, airspace. Now let's block that airspace. It's obstructive. So I is green because there's some common things that can cause this, including, for example, mucus. So uh, let's say you block that airspace. Okay, what's going to happen is that for the immediate next little bit, um, there's still air in there. Okay, but the body and the blood vessels that surround this are still going to extract some oxygen from that. And as that happens, the pressure inside this airspace is going to start dropping. And when it gets low enough, it's going to collapse. Right. So because of that obstruction here, the airway, uh, the airspace has now collapsed, and it won't reinflate until you remove that obstruction. So again, this is a small example in a very small region, but that could be applied to larger and larger regions depending on what the obstruction is. So uh, let's say you had uh, uh, aspiration of something and it got down, got lodged, and you blocked airflow into a whole region of the lungs, that could reasonably happen just the same. Now let's go back to the mucus example. So do we know of any disorders that you cause excessive mucus that might lead to that kind of a thing? Yeah. CF, chronic bronchitis, asthma, Infections, right? Starting to make sense how this stuff relates back to stuff we've already learned about. Okay. Compression. Compression, I'll show you a picture that'll make the most sense. This is compression atelectasis where instead of having something inside the airway, uh, you have something outside that's compressing from the outside and, and pushing in on it and causes a collapse due to the, the imposed pressure. So that could be a pile of different things. That could be a tumor. That could be... Uh, bleed, right? It, um, that could be occupying space in the pleura. We'll talk. One of our last topics is going to be um, hemothorax, pneumothorax, pleural fusion, that kind of stuff. So you're you're now occupying space in what's supposed to be a potential space in between the pleura. So it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to push inward on the lung tissue and can cause a compression atelectasis. Okay. Uh, increase surface tension. So if there's uh, if there's uh, if there's too much surface tension, we talked about what that sat or what that is two weeks ago. Uh, it, the tendency is for the the fluid, the, sorry, the uh, water molecules to be attracted to one another and collapse of the airspace. So that could take a bunch of forms. That could be your infant respiratory distress syndrome, which is a topic we're going to get to in a second. So babies born prematurely can't make sufficient surfactant on its own. Airways can collapse. Okay, we'll talk about how to manage that. Um, this could be uh, um, pulmonary edema. So pulmonary edema start accumulating uh, fluid in the airspaces. It waters down the surfactants. So there's now fluid in there. Airways collapse. Okay. Uh, fibrotic tissue. Uh, we've learned about a bunch of things that can cause this. Um, your let's um, let's say your COPD or recurrent infection or CF or um, your pneumoconiosis or a pile of different things that the accumulation of scar tissue can impair expansion of air spaces and then subsequent subsequently lead to collapse as well. Okay, so again, kind of like the uh, discussion with. Uh, uh, um, the uh, clots, uh, <clears throat> the, the signs and symptoms are going to depend on what kind of space is involved. So is it a small region of the lungs? Is it an alveolus like I've drawn up here? You're never going to notice that. 
Okay? Is it an entire lung that's collapsed? That's going to cause much, much more significant problems. And so again, the, the spectrum is going to depend on how, uh, how significant the space is. But um, in the larger areas, you're going to get most likely chest pain, shortness of breath, and of course, the increased uh, respiratory rate and heart rate as a compensation mechanism for it. Um, so, and the, it doesn't really say it explicitly, but the treatment of those is all going to depend on the cause. Right? We have a bunch of different potential causes here, uh, so the management of that is going to be supportive care while you treat the primary. Can happen post-operative uh, uh, as well. Okay. Next, pleural effusion. So, what does effusion mean? Fluid accumulation. Okay, so it's movement of fluid from one region to another, and it occupies space. And so here, pleural effusion means uh, fluid accumulation in the pleural cavity, which again should normally not be occupied by much of anything. Right? It's not really a cavity per se, it's just a potential space with a little bit of fluid between the visceral and parietal pleura, um, just enough to keep some, uh, some lubrication basically and have them stuck together. If you get shifting of fluid for any of various number of reasons, you get fluid shifting into that pleural cavity, it starts occupying space and taking up space where it shouldn't, and that's going to have a bunch of effects. I said earlier, that could be, for example, a cause of compression atelectasis. You're now increasing a mass of fluid right, outside of the lungs, and it's compressing the lungs inward because the ribcage doesn't expand very well. Okay, so it pushes inward towards the lung tissue. Okay, um, what else? So, so the, the broad category of pleural effusion just means there's fluid in the pleural cavity. Now, the type of fluid can vary enormously. It depends. We have some names for each of those. If it's a watery effusion, uh, that can happen with uh, things like alteration in the plasma osmotic pressure, like our liver disorders and, and reasons for fluid movements that we said earlier that would be called a hydrothorax. So it's a watery fluid, shifts into the, into the pleural space. Um, you could have other types of exudate, maybe, a, maybe a, um, a, a watery exudate from inflammation, or maybe a purulent exudate from infection. So you have an, an infection, and that purulence, that pus, starts to accumulate in the pleural cavity. That's a fluid just the same as a watery fluid is, has similar effects. Okay, um, You can also have uh, hemothorax. We learned that word, I think, last week or two weeks ago. Hemothorax means that you have blood in the pleural cavity. So there's some kind of damage somewhere. There's bleeding that has accumulated blood in the, in the pleural uh, cavity. And they all have the same physical effects. Okay? So the effect of accumulating any of those fluids in the pleural space is, of course, going to be shortness of breath. It's impairing the lungs' expansion in that area. Um, it's going to give you that cyclic chest pain that we've talked about before with pleurisy. So there's uh, inflammation and pain in the pleura. And so when you breathe, particularly breathing in usually, it causes pain that might subside as you, as you breathe out. Uh, and again, increase respiratory rate, increased respiratory rate, increased heart rates. That's what the body does. So how do you treat pleural effusion? Well, a Again, that's going to depend on the cause. If it's an infection, if it's a bleed, if it's a if it's a, 
uh, a fluid shift from, from uh, another type of uh, disorder somewhere else other than the lungs, that's all going to depend. Okay? But the first thing to do is to figure out what it is. So you know there's fluid in there, you've got to find out what that fluid is. So we typically do thoracocentesis uh, to, to, to establish that. So that is uh, where you insert a needle from the outside, right? You go, you go between the ribs, you get through the uh, parietal pleura into the pleural cavity, extract that fluid, and then you can go from there. So that's going to tell you right away whether it's blood, whether it's fluid, whether it's purulent. If it's purulent, you know, maybe do a culture, uh, those kinds of things. Right? In the meantime, the, the, the um, performance of thoracocentesis by itself is helping to manage the problem because you're now extracting that fluid, removing that pressure, and, pre and hopefully, uh, at least temporarily, resu uh, uh, resuming some of the normal function that was impaired by that fluid accumulation, right? Because you relieve that pressure. But again, if there's a something, if there's something that, uh, if there's some kind of cause that is continuing to dump more fluid into that pleural cavity, that needs to be managed. Okay. The last example there would be uh, pneumothorax. So again, we're still talking about the pleural cavity, but this at this time, uh, pneumo implies that it's not fluid in there, so blood or water or purulence, it's air. So there's a small handful of, of subcategories of this that we need to learn. Uh, <laughs> that means we, our subcategories are open, closed, and tension. Okay, so let's let's talk about. But all of them involve uh, air being moved into the uh, into the pleural cavity. So again, uh, this here is a good summary of the three things we're about to learn. All right, so we're getting it now. Tom likes tables. Okay, good. Uh, we'll come back to that. So let's talk about the the the, the, the two primary types of pneumothorax, and then the third, the tension, the kind of the subtype. Um, closed versus open. So closed pneumothorax basically means it's closed to the outside world. So closed basically means that the, in, in both closed and open pneumothorax, I mean, how do you get air into the pleural cavity? It has to come from somewhere, right? So in both cases, you have a rupture of one of the pleural membranes. Does that make sense? So either the visceral pleura or the parietal pleura. You've punctured it, you've caused damage to it, you've ruptured it in some way, and air is now allow, able to flow through it and accumulate in that pleural cavity. So in a closed pneumothorax, it's closed to the outside world in that the, uh, the, the rupture, the, the defects of the, of the pleura, is the visceral pleura. So it's the inner layer that's on the outside of the lung tissue. So it's usually some kind of internal thing that's caused a rupture of the inner layer, and air gets from the inside of the lungs into the pleural cavity. Is that making sense so far? All right, so um, there's a bunch of things that can cause that. Uh, secondary actually makes the most sense first. So a secondary pneumothorax means there's some kind of inflammatory something going on in the lung tissue, and it's causing damage, as it does, and it happens to damage the visceral pleura. And it causes a tear or a rupture of some kind, and air can now move from the inside of the air spaces in the lungs into the pleural cavity. So we actually talked about an example of this last week when we talked about emphysema. And I know that was at the end of a long class. But in emphysema, there is, there is a damage of the septa, the walls between the alveoli. Uh, and it causes these enlargement of air spaces, because you're breaking down the walls between them. 
You can also break down the walls outside of them and you can cause damage to the visceral pleura. And so that allows potentially air to move from inside the lungs into the pleural cavity. So that's what this means, right? rupture of an emphysematous bleb. Okay, that could also be some other respiratory disease. So it could be lung cancer, it could be uh, an infection of some kind, it could be any number of other things that are causing inflammatory damage inside the lung tissue that can cause a rupture of that visceral pleura. It could also happen spontaneously. So for no real good reason, uh, it happens spontaneously. There is a spontaneous tear in the, uh, in the visceral pleura, and now the air space, or the air, um, air moves into the uh, pleural cavity and can cause a subsequent lung collapse. All right, um, so spontaneous pneumothorax, um, there, are some, it, there are some odd kind of uh, population things that we know. It happens more often in men than women. It tends to happen more often in people who are tall and lanky. But that's by no means to say that if you are of that size and shape, then you're going to get this. It just it tends to happen more. It doesn't mean that if you're a woman, it can't happen because it can. But again, it's spontaneous. All right. <clears throat> so the difference between that and an open pneumothorax is the membrane that's ruptured. So in an open pneumothorax, you think that you can think of it more as it's open to the outside world. Uh, and so that means in this case, you have ruptured the, not the visceral pleura, but the parietal pleura. And so if you rupture the parietal pleura, it means the damage had to come from the outside. And so this is your, uh, your trauma, right? Your broken rib that punctures it, your stab wound, your uh, outside things that penetrate inward and cause damage to, uh, to the, uh, the parietal pleura. All right, now, um, a subcategory of that, so actually it, it can be both from open or closed uh, pneumothorax, but the subtype of both of those is attention pneumothorax. So in that case, wherever the, the, the defect is, whether it's the visceral or parietal pleura, uh, in usual, you kind of your standard open and closed pneumothorax, air can move in, but it can also move out. Okay? In tension pneumothorax, there's something about the, the, the defect or the wound or whatever it is that when the person breathes in, right, air moves in, but then it closes, the hole closes off so that the air can't be released. And that's the most serious form of these because if every time that you breathe, air moves in, but it can't flow back out, you're going to progressively be accumulating more and more and more pressure inside the pleural cavity, okay, which is going to have the most likelihood of causing significant compression and collapse of the lung tissue uh, and have the most you know, detrimental effects. All right. So uh, as a side note, uh, if you guys have done all that uh, first aid, um, so the management of this kind of thing, especially if it's, uh, if it's a uh, open pneumothorax, right, the standard treatment for first aid for open pneumothorax is uh, it's a dressing, you usually uh, tape it off on three sides uh, so that when the person inhales, uh, it sucks the, the dressing, the, usually a plastic, inward and, and closes the hole, uh, but the bottom being open allows for some drainage. Technically, as a side note, uh, the, uh, the pro appropriate first aid for a tension pneumothorax is to make the hole bigger because you want to allow airflow uh, out. Okay. 
Almost done. And we'll take a break. Um, foil chest. So foil chest has to do with uh, rib fracture. And, um, a, a visual probably be the best kind of uh, way to understand this. So you think of your ribs. Okay. Um, if you had a, uh, a rib fracture, what, where is the most common location on the ribs to, to fracture them? Front, side, back. So actually, the side, the side, out here. So, so <laughs> the ribs kind of curve around this way, right? They're blend into cartilage into the sternum here. The joints are back here. Out at the side is kind of where they bow, and it's their weakest spot. So if you if you compress the rib cage, right? If you have a car accident, we compress the rib cage, or sports, and you get crushed this way, or flat on your back, or whatever the case is, uh, or land directly on it. Quite frankly, um, most common spot for the fracture happens out here, okay? Because the bows and it breaks. Now, what? How do you typically treat a, a rib fracture? Yeah. Try not to laugh or cough or sneeze too hard, and good luck to you, right? Enjoy your next six weeks. Um, but uh, this, is, this is very different, okay? So this is um, the, uh, the flail chest is a more significant traumatic injury where you have multiple rib fractures, and the key thing is it's in multiple locations. So if you can imagine the, the ribs here, right? The ribs are embedded between the intercostal muscles and the overlying musculature. So they're, they're embedded in there. And the issue with the flail chest is you have um, ribs that you have fractures on, at multiple sites. So say you have not just a fracture at one point out of the apex, but you say you have a fracture here and then also a fracture here. And this diagram is showing four ribs all being broken in that same way. And that's fine. We'll use that visual. So <clears throat> now what you have is these ribs are free-floating embedded within the musculature. Now they can move, and they don't move with the rest of the rib cage. Okay? They follow the pressures that go on inside the lungs. So normally, when you breathe in, right? when, you're, when you're inspiring, your rib cage is expanding. right? But the pressure inside the lungs is decreasing because of that vacuum effect into the lungs. So in this case, if those ribs are free floating, then as you breathe in and the rest of the rib cage expands, that section gets sucked inward because it, it follows that pressure and that vacuum force inward. So that, has, that creates some, some real problems. Okay? It causes compressive effect on the lungs, so that area of the lungs can't expand. That movement's called paradoxical movement. Um, I'm not going to get into the details. We don't need to for this class, but it also actually causes what's called a mediastinal shift, which means the mediastinum and everything that's in it, including the heart, starts swinging back and forth. In the uh, inside the thorax because of those changes in pressure, so there's some significant problems. And and of the types that you're going to manage, uh, something like a flail chest that will often be the surgical correction where you have to because you have to stabilize those ribs. Okay, um, so the, the the simple version of that is because the 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 ribs are being sucked inward, it impairs the expansion of the lungs, and that's going to be a real significant um, impairment of oxygenation. All right, almost there. Next is infant respiratory distress syndrome. And you've probably heard of this before. Um, what causes uh, infant respiratory distress syndrome? A lack of surfactant production, good. So um, this relates to how old is baby when they're born, right? What, how many weeks of gestation? So um, who knows when 
fetus starts making uh, surfactant? How many weeks? It, they start making it a little earlier. They start making it around uh, 26. But typically, uh, the number you're thinking of is, is basically if, if, a, if baby is born before 31, 32 weeks, they're, they're, the likelihood that they're going to have this is significant. Okay? So anything, bef anything before that, before 31, 32, they have a significant likelihood of developing IRDS. Any baby that is born prematurely has a possibility of, of developing this because although you start developing the ability to, to, uh, to make surfactant at 26 weeks, it doesn't really fully mature until closer to, to, you know, to, to full term. So born prematurely, it is a possibility. But regardless, and obviously the earlier, the, the more premature the baby is, the, the greater the risk. Um, but with all these cases, the lungs are not mature enough to develop surfactant, sufficient surfactant on its own. We know what surfactant does, right? It reduces surface tension, so it prevents the air spaces from collapsing due to the presence of, of, of water molecules. So um, baby, if baby is born and has IRDS, um, what's, what are they going to look like? What's going to happen? They're going to have difficulty breathing. They're going to look cyanosis. And, and the and air spaces will start collapsing. So, you know, the management is, is relatively straightforward. It's positive airway pressure. So you're basically, uh, you're, you're giving airway, uh, uh, mechanical ventilation or air, airway pressure, excuse me, um, and spraying in synthetic surfactant. So you, they have that surfactant so the air spaces stay open. And until the lungs mature to the point where they can sufficiently make enough of their own surfactant, you continue that, uh, that therapy. Okay. Um, there is an interesting, uh, an interesting other thing that, um, that uh, is known about prevention of this. Um, if mom goes into labor and, uh, and baby is known that, I mean, you know how far into the gestation they are, if, they're, if it's known they're going to be premature uh, and you give mom glucocorticoids, so corticosteroids during labor, uh, it reduces the incidence of infant respiratory stress syndrome. All right. So again, with that, uh, baby's not going to be able to breathe. So, um, so, so dyspnea or outright uh, inability to breathe, all the things that go along with that, cyanosis, blood pressure tanks, uh, and they need, that, uh, they need the intervention to, to breathe. Okay, adults. Adults can get respiratory distress syndrome too, but it's not from lack of surfactant production, it's due to something else going on in the, in the lungs. And the most typical reason is inflammation. So there's some kind of inflammatory issue going on in the lungs. That could be infection, that could be aspiration, that could be um, uh, something else going on systemically. It could be um, organ failure in another, uh, another part of the body that causes inflammation. Um, there are a bunch of different ways this can, be, this can precipitate, uh, but either way, the problem is you have the inflammation, you have the significant uh, uh, inflammatory exudates, so the, the fluid accumulation in the air spaces. Uh, it causes damage to lung tissue. It waters the surfactant down with the inflammation. You have pulmonary edema and a real significant impairment of, of lung function. So um, it's a really quick, broad overview because there are so many different possibilities of how this can develop. And I'll tell you, basically, you're going to be doing supportive care Right, to manage the lungs, manage the breathing, uh, and manage the underlying cause. So if it's an infection, if it's you know, other organ failure, if it's uh, aspiration, if it's whatever, 
um, those obviously have to be managed differently. All right. And that leads us to our last slide before our break, respiratory failure. So we've kind of been touching on this, just kind of skirting around it, but there's lots and lots and lots of things that can cause respiratory failure. Uh, the broad definition is the lungs can no longer support you know, the, the requirements of the, of the body. So this could be from a chronic disorder like emphysema, and it's the, you know, the um, eventual reason why uh, it become, that disorder becomes fatal. Uh, it could be an acute disorder like uh, an infection. It could be you know, acute due to, say, um, uh, an asthma attack. Uh, it could be due to the end result of uh, a degenerative disorder, uh, some paralysis like, uh, like uh, muscular dystrophy. There's a whole bunch of things this could be, but the end result is the same. It's the lung tissue is no longer able to support its normal function in a way that can is sufficient for the body's needs. Respiratory failure leads to death, and that's it. It's a little bit of a macabre way to finish that unit, but it's what it is. All right. So, do we have any questions about the last bit of the respiratory units? All right. Do you want to do your Kahoot now or after the break? Let's do it now. Okay. So, uh, we're going to move on to the next unit, which is uh, special senses, so eyes and ears and some balance stuff. Uh, we won't get to the ears and balance stuff today. We'll pretty much be talking about just eyes, uh, and then we'll roll into this, uh, finish it up next week before we get into endocrine. Um, so again, this will not show up on next week's test. It's just respiratory. The cutoff is at the end of that unit. Uh, so let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, this is, a, again, one of those units, most of them, where it's important to understand the underlying anatomy. So uh, we'll get into this image on the board here uh, in a little bit. But it's important that as you go through this, you learn and remember which parts of the eyes are, are, are where each of the disorders is being found. All right? So <laughs> we're talking about broadly this unit, um, sensation. Although, again, there are special senses. So when you think of senses, you think of your general senses, which are things like uh, touch and pressure and vibration and nociception and things like that. Uh, and then sense, uh, special senses are vision and hearing and, and balance. So um, really briefly, uh, when you're talking about any kind of senses, ultimately you're talking about what kind of receptors are found in the body to detect what it is that our brain interprets as senses. Uh, so you can classify receptors based on a few different things. Um, one is location. Uh, so you could essentially uh, classify them by um, exteroreceptors versus visceroreceptors. So extero means towards the outside, exterior. Uh, so these are things, receptors that you typically think of when you think of uh, senses and your general senses because they're embedded in your skin, which is in the periphery. So things for touch and pressure and temperature and vibration and things like that. I know pain is on there. That's a little bit of a strange one. There are technically no such thing as a pain receptor. We do have nociceptors that can be interpreted as pain, but that's a more of a complicated discussion. Um, we have visceroreceptors that are uh, around the organs that will detect changes in around the organs. We have things like proprioceptors, uh, which are going to be nerve endings that are embedded within joints and muscles that give us information about position and movement uh, and those kinds of things that feed into the ultimate sensation of balance. Now, we can also classify the sensory receptors by what, what kinds of stimuli it is that they detect. So I'm going to skip the first one first because that's what we're talking about today. Um, 
other kinds of receptors might include things like chemoreceptors. So this, for example, is how taste and smell work. Um, chemoreceptors are detecting chemicals. Right? We've talked about chemoreceptors uh, in the previous unit in the context of, say, your chemoreceptors in your brainstem are detecting uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen levels and pH and things like that. Um, of course, if they are superficial in the mouth and in the nasal cavity, then it gives you the sensation of taste and smell. We, of course, have uh, receptors in, uh, in the skin uh, that are called thermoreceptors that detect hot changes in hot and cold. Um, we have photoreceptors uh, that we're going to see in the retina that detect uh, um, waves of light. Uh, we have nociceptors that detect potentially noxious or potentially harmful stimuli. Uh, the brain takes that information and may interpret that as pain. Uh, we have receptors that are osmoreceptors, so they detect concentration of, uh, of, of the, s the solutes in water, for example, how much water there is as a solvent, how much solutes and what else is in it. Um, and it takes us back to the first one, which I skipped, which is mechanoreceptors. And so these are receptors that are designed to be able to detect uh, force and pressure of some kind. So we use mechanoreceptors, of course, in uh, the detection of general senses like touch and pressure, uh, but it's important to remember that when you understand the mechanism of how they work, uh, this is actually uh, how we do uh, hearing and balance in the inner ear as well. Um, the broad, the quick kind of version of it is um, basically you have these little hair-like receptors that when fluid kind of uh, runs past them and bends them, that's force, and they send that information to the brain and we use that uh, how it, we use that to detect essentially either hearing or balance. And we'll get to that next week. So today is going to be pretty much about the eye. So let's, let's make sure that we're all understanding the anatomy that's involved. Um, basically, uh, you're going to have uh, light that goes in through a clear part of the eye, uh, the front, which is called the cornea, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, it, Hopefully, the light is going to make it all the way to the back of the eyeball, uh, where it's going to project those light rays onto the, where the, where the um, photoreceptors are in the retina. And we have two basic kinds of photoreceptors, rods and cones. Um, and we're not going to go into the chemical differences, mercifully, but the, uh, the, the basic idea is they have different functions. Uh, rods are primarily for uh, black and white vision. so essentially night vision, uh, and cones are more for color and acuity, so sharpness. Um, now that's, there are going to be some differences, of course, in where in the retina we find those differing uh, uh, rods and cones, the receptor cells. Uh, does anybody know what the pattern is, so where we find rods versus where we tend to find cones? Okay, that's fine. We'll get that. We'll get to it. Um, now, Ultimately, that the, the information that's detected by those by those uh, photoreceptors uh, is in the nervous tissue, right? The retina. It's going to send that information along this nerve, okay, called the optic nerve. Uh, what's the other name for that? The optic nerve is also a cranial nerve, right? Cranial nerve. Try again. Yes. Cranial nerve two. Okay. It's exclusively for, for, um, for a sensation in the sense that it's, it's for visual information. There's no motor function of cranial nerve 2. And it takes that information and it's sent back to the, uh, the part of the brain that processes visual information, which is right at the back. It's the occipital lobe. And we're going to talk about that pathway today. Now, 
Um, the eye is a fairly sensitive structure, and so we are going to need some things to protect it. Um, we, of course, have the bony orbit, so the, um, uh, the space in the skull where the eyeball sits. Part of having a brow is, is to protect us against the, uh, um, the outside world, to protect the eyeball. We're also going to have some uh, flimsier things that are going to cover and protect the eyeball, like the eyelids and the eyelashes, and, the, and their goal is to prote uh, prevent foreign debris from getting into the eyes, as well as uh, lubricating the eyes. And they do that partially through the conjunctiva. I'm going to draw the conjunctiva on this diagram in a minute. But the conjunctiva is essentially a mucous membrane that covers the inner lining of the eyelids and also covers the sclera, so part of the whites uh, of the eyes. So we'll get to that in a little bit. And then lastly, of course, we have things like tears. So tears have a cleaning function. They also have an immune function in that there are some, uh, some enzymes, for example, that are present in tears that help protect us against uh, bacteria. Um, Function-wise and movement-wise, um, there are uh, six muscles that attach in and embed themselves in the outer coat of the eyeball. We're not going to learn their names, uh, but I do need you to know the cranial nerves that control those, uh, those muscles. Now, there is a mistake on this slide, so you're going to correct it after you tell me what it is. Muscles, uh, the extraocular muscles are controlled by cranial nerves three and four. What's wrong about that statement? Uh, no, no. Two is just for vision. Two, there's no motor function of cranial nerve two. There is, should be another one. You're right. So which one? I know what it's called. I don't know what Okay, tell me what it's called. It is. That's cranial nerve six. Good. Okay, so add that to it. So cranial nerve three, which is called, this is the big one. That's most of the, most of the muscles. Oculomotor, good. Cranial nerve four, which is called trochlear, good. And cranial nerve six, abducens, good. Okay, so add that one to it. Now, this we're going to get to this diagram and learn some more some some more details. Okay, so the eyeball is going to be made up of basically three layers. Okay, so the outer, the middle, and the inner layer. So I've drawn them in colors here. Um, this black part here is not part of the outer layer. That's that's an eyelid and some eyelashes. Don't laugh. I've done my best. All right. But the, um, as far as the next few slides go, the black layer okay, is the outer fibrous layer. Okay? So it's basically a protective layer. So it goes all the way around the outside, uh, and then it bulges outward in the front. So the bulk of this, right, the posterior part, all of this, okay, that's all the sclera. So that's the white part of your eyes. All right. And the front part here, which is continuous with that outer fibrous layer, uh, is the cornea. Okay, now, the cornea is, of course, clear. It has to be, because the light is supposed to come straight through the cornea and then make its way to the, to the back of the eye. All right. Uh, side note, while we're on it, uh, the cornea, part of what, uh, I mean, it's, it's out of necessity, it's clear, but, but uh, the implication there is that there can't be blood vessels that supply it because blood vessels are not clear. And so um, it does not have direct blood flow to it. It gets its nourishment from the fluid that's in the, uh, the anterior cavity here. Uh, and so um, that speaks to some of how the tissue actually works, because it is living tissue, um, but it doesn't heal terribly well. 
Okay, the next layer on this diagram is the, uh, is the red layer. So that's the middle layer. Um, it's called, the whole thing is called the uvea, uh, but it's got some important components. Okay, so the first part is basically, if you wash my fingers here, from here back, okay? The bulk of this, as I've drawn it, that's called the choroid, okay? That's the vascular layer. So it's where the blood vessels that supply the, in, the, the eyeball are. Okay? It's the blood vessels that supply internal structures like the retina. And we'll get back to that in the context in a little bit. Um, now, the other parts of that middle uvea layer are at the anterior, at the front. Okay? And so here we have this drawn as a red dot there. That's called the ciliary body. There's two of them. Right? Well, in this diagram, there's two of them. Basically, it's a 3D structure. The ciliary body is uh, what connects to this red line. And that red line is what forms the opening, this empty space. What's that empty space called? The black of the eye. Pupil, of course, right? So it's the space in between the thing that surrounds it, which is, of course, colored, and we call that the iris. Okay? So the ciliary body basically attaches to the iris, and it's able to pull on it and change whether, you know, change the size of the iris and subsequently the size of the pupil. So effectively, it's, it's, it's controlling dilation and constriction of the pupil, okay? And as you would have learned in, uh, in, in uh, neuro, in um, anatomy one, the dilation and constriction of the pupil are controlled primarily by the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, right? The autonomic nervous system. So which one does which? I know it's on your slide, but which, which of those two mechanisms, the sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system, which causes pupillary dilation, opening up the pupil? Sympathetic, right? So think about when, you, when you're in sympathetic drive, right? when you're using your sympathetic nervous system, you're probably going to be physically active in some, kind, in some way, right? Stress response, things like that. You're going to want to see your environment so pupils open up. Conversely, parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest, right? You're going to constrict the pupils. Okay, and that's done by that middle layer. The, uh, the other part that's uh, relevant here is that um, the, uh, this, this structure here is not technically part of that layer, it's, but it's connected. Uh, this is the lens. Okay, so that is a, a clear, flexible structure that's, that's posterior to the cornea uh, that is responsible for uh, refracting light rays as they come through the cornea, and it, it will bend those light waves and then project them onto the nervous layer, the retina at the back of the eye. Okay, um, it's held in place to the ciliary bodies as well by uh, suspensory ligaments, so tiny little ligaments, uh, and by contraction of these very small muscular structures, it can change the shape of the lens very slightly for focus. <clears throat> okay, which takes us to the green layer on that diagram, which is the innermost layer. That's the nervous layer, the nervous tissue layer, uh, where the uh, where the photoreceptors, the rods and cones, are found, and that is, of course, the retina. So it projects forward about two-thirds of the way to the front of the eye, so it's all the way to the back, two-thirds of the way forward, so you don't have retina anteriorly, which makes sense because you're projecting light waves backward. They wouldn't hit this part of the eye. Um, and again, we have our two types of uh, photoreceptors, okay? So our rods and our cones. 
as I mentioned earlier, rods are primarily for black and white vision, which means they're your best uh, in your dim environments, the nighttime vision. Uh, and cones are for color and acuity, sharpness of vision. Now, there is a significant difference in where you find de different densities of those, uh, of those photoreceptors. So the bulk of the, uh, of the retina towards the outsides here, the stuff that projects two-thirds of the way forward, is mostly rods, okay? And your cones are heavily, heavily concentrated in this very central region. If you were to shoot a beam of light straight through the cornea, straight through the lens, right at the very central portion at the back, um, you hit this region uh, called the macula densa, okay? So that's in, on this diagram that I've drawn, that thickening of the green part, that's called the macula densa, right? Or people just call it the macula. Now there's a little pit, right? a little groove in the macula densa, and that little pit is called the fovea centralis. And that, in particular, in the fovea, is where the highest density of cones are found. So the very central part of your vision, right, the very central most part of your vision is where you have the highest acuity, sharpness, which makes sense, okay? It's also where you're best uh, able to see uh, colors and contrast. That also explains, by the way, uh, why, if you've ever noticed, um, if you're, if you're um, walking through a very dimly lit space, say, you know, a room at night, there's not a lot of light, you can actually see better out of your periphery than your central vision. And that's because the light in your periphery is projecting into the, into the rods that are heavily concentrated on the periphery of the, of the retina. All right. So, a uh, couple other things here. Um, that, uh, oh, so the, um, the retina, importantly, um, it's just photoreceptors, okay? So there are no nociceptors, no pain receptors in the retina. So if you damage the retina by itself, you won't feel pain, right? It doesn't hurt unless there's significant trauma that's gone along with it. Uh, and so that will be relevant again when we talk about a retinal detachment later on. So remember the retina is attached to this underlying middle layer, the choroid, the vascular layer. And so when you say somebody has detached their retina, it's literally peeled away from that, uh, from that vascular layer, which means it's one, typically surgically correctable if you do it quickly, and two, the longer it, it goes on, the longer that tissue goes without blood because it's torn away from the vascular layer and those changes, the, the, de the deficits that have happened can become permanent. And we'll get into that later. All right. Um, the other thing to, the, the other important thing that we're going to need to know is the, uh, the two cavities. Okay. So the, the eye is broken into an anterior cavity and a posterior cavity. Okay. So the anterior cavity is everything anterior to the lens. So anterior to the lens and posterior to the cornea. So in this space right here. Okay. Anterior cavity. That anterior cavity can be broken down into an anterior posterior chamber. And if you get really detailed discussions about glaucoma, that can be important, but we're not going to go that deep into it. I'll, I'll make sure that we're on the same page when we get to glaucoma. Uh, but just know that all of this is the anterior cavity, okay? Which means that everything, uh, oh, sorry, in the anterior cavity, in the anterior cavity, you have a watery fluid called the aqueous humor. Aqueous means watery. 
in the posterior cavity, so, or, or, sorry, excuse me, yeah, in the posterior cavity, so everything posterior to the lens, which makes up the bulk of the volume of the eyeball, that's where you have the vitreous humor, which is less watery and more jelly-like. Okay? So anterior cavity, aqueous humor, fluid, posterior cavity, posterior to the lens, uh, vitreous humor, more gelatinous, jelly-like. Okay? So that's this guy right here. Um, and we will we'll learn a little bit more about the anterior cavity, like I said, when we talk about glaucoma, um, in the sense that the fluid that's formed, the aqueous humor that's, that's in this anterior cavity, it, it is constantly being recycled. So it's being produced and it's being drained and produced and drained, right? And it maintains a regular pressure. So when you talk about the intraocular pressure, you're talking about primarily this anterior cavity. Now, um, alterations in that pressure are going to be problematic and, and with glaucoma in particular, what you're talking about is increase in that, in the pressure of the aqueous humor in the anterior cavity. Um, I'm not going to test you on what exactly that pressure should be, so don't, no sense in memorizing that number. Just know that there is a number that it should maintain that pressure at. So far so good? All right. Uh, <laughs> side note. Um, do, uh, do both of your eyes uh, operate together independently? Is, do they, are they even? Is one dominant? Do we know anything about that? You, you, you can. So yeah, you can with, with training, you can teach them to, to, to move independently. Um, they should normally be coordinated to get, so they move together uh, so that, that they converge and focus together. So having, being binocular, having two eyes is what allows us depth perception because you take information from one eye and the other eye and you combine them together. Our brain does some really interesting things and it gives us the perception of 3D depth. Um, it's also uh, surprises some people to know that uh, you do have one uh, dominant eye that is kind of pr uh, mostly responsible for the center of your of your visual field, and uh, it's not doesn't always have well it doesn't have anything to do with what si what hand is dominant either. Okay, so I'll show you how to figure this out. Um, take your hands, this together, make a little hole in between them, and focus on something in the distance. Like me. Everyone focus on me. It's all about me today. Okay? So something in the distance, and you're gonna make that that focus right or whatever you're looking at right in between your the in the hole. Okay? Everyone sees that? Now close one eye. Do you don't move your hands. When you close that eye, do you still see what's in the hole? Okay? If so, that's your dominant eye. Now open them both again. Keep that image in the hole. Close the other eye. No, you can't. can't see it, right? So, the one eye, the eye, the eye that, the eye that you, if you keep it open, you can see that image that's straight out in front of you. That is your dominant eye. Did it have anything to do? It doesn't have anything to do with what hand you're dominant. So actually, this surprised people. So when I first realized this, <laughs> okay, besides the fact that I'm uh, short and heavy and white, I was a crappy basketball shooter, right? But um, 
I, like a lot of people, will line up, because I'm right-handed, I'll line up at the free throw line with my, with, I'm trying to get as close as I can to the basket. So my right eye, which I assume is dominant, is lined up like this, and not terribly great, right? When I realize that my left eye is my dominant eye, I would square up like so, so that now I'm in straight line and much more accurate. And the same thing goes for any shooting sports or anything like that. Yep, sure is. Yep, and so people, uh, people that have you know, that are that need that kind of accuracy, which is a lot of sports and a lot of activities, can benefit significantly from that kind of thing. Anyway, okay, that's not on the test. That's just <laughs> whatever. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the pathway. Uh, so the light is going to, of course, go through the cornea, through the lens, project backward onto the retina. It engages, the, it's detected by your rods and your cones, which when they detect lights will have a chemical change occur and that initiates action potentials. So that information is sent along cranial nerve two, optic nerve, head straight backward towards the, towards the brain. Now, <coughs> The eventual goal is to get that information into the occipital lobes at the back of the brain. Uh, and we need to know the pathways uh, and some, some special things about it uh, because you're going to get tested on it in this unit and you're going to get tested on it again in the nervous system unit. So you may as well learn it because you're going to see this exact same slide twice. Now, the, the way to start approaching this is in each one of your eyeballs, okay, you have a left visual field and a right visual field, okay? Don't get caught in the trap of thinking that left eye means left visual field and right eye means right visual field, okay? So for example, um, if you, uh, again, are looking straight forward, okay? Focus on something in the distance and close, uh, everyone close your uh, right eye, okay? So your left eye is open, you're gonna have a good left visual field. Can you see anything across the other side of your nose? Can you see, with your left eye open, can you see anything on, on your right side? Yes, you should be able to, right? It's less, but you, you do have a, a visual field, a right visual field in your left eyeball. Does that make sense? And the same thing is true. You close your left eye, your right eye sees a lot over on the right side, but it can also see across the, the nose as well. So what's telling you is that you're getting information about both left and right visual fields as a whole from both eyes. Now, how this works, or what this matters, is that the information from the entirety of your left visual field, so the information about the left visual field from both eyes ends up in the right occipital lobe. And the information from the right visual field of both eyes ends up in the left occipital lobe. Are you with me so far? Yeah. The, the visual information from your left visual field of both eyeballs ends up in the right occipital lobe for interpretation by the brain. The information in the both right visual fields from both eyes ends up in the left occipital lobe. So far so good? Now, that means that for each eyeball and each optic nerve, you're going to have information in there that some of it is going to stay on the same side of the brain. Right? because it's going to just go straight back to the, to the occipital lobe. But some of that is going to be about the other visual field, which means it needs to cross over and get to the other side of the brain. 
And did you guys learn about the optic chiasm in nervous uh, system anatomy before? Well, or maybe when uh, you did cranial nerves? Okay, so the optic chiasm is this right there, crossover. Actually, let me see if I can get a better picture. To here. So here you're seeing the underside. Oops. Yeah, okay. So here you're seeing the inferior view of the brain. Okay. Here you have the eyes, optic nerves, and they make this big X. That's why it's called a chiasm. Okay? So they make this X shape. And at this point, some information from the left uh, 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 optic nerve is going to cross over and head to the right side of the brain and vice versa. All right, so that's why it's an X shape because some of it has to cross over. So, as a side note, before I get too uh, out of what we're out of the discussion, you guys do the, uh, the, the anatomy, uh, you did the um, uh, skeletal anatomy inside the skull? You look inside the skull, you take the brain out, and there's a big, a big kind of pit in the middle called the cella tercica. That's where the pituitary gland sits. So uh, this is the optic chiasm we just looked at right here. And right beneath it is that pituitary gland. So um, as we'll see in a little bit, uh, in cases of pituitary enlargement, if the pituitary gland, like an adenoma, it gets bigger, tumor, then it can actually bump up into that uh, optic chiasm and give you visual signs in addition to whatever endocrine stuff is going on. All right, back to this. So, <laughs> um, again, because you have an eye and an optic nerve on each side of the brain or each side of the, of the skull, um, and each one's going to have information from both visual fields, half, let's say, of that information has to go across the chiasm to the other side of the brain. So that means that, as with all neurological lesions, location matters. And I'm going to drill this when we get to the nervous system, uh, because you can have a tumor um, or, a, or a bleed or a clot or whatever the case is somewhere in the brain, and the effects are going to be entirely dependent on where in the brain it is. Right? Um, so, for example, um, this pathway where you cause a lesion or a damage to that pathway is going to dictate what the eventual visual effects are. Okay, so let's let's do this first. Uh, let's say you, it's not even on this page, but let's say you damage an eyeball, right? So you get hit in the face with something and you lose an eye, all right? Now, again, back to that, uh, that uh, um, visual from before, if say, I no longer have a right eye, okay? Do I still have a left and right visual field? Yes. I do, right? Because my left eye has both. It has left and right visual fields. Okay, they're not even, but it has both. Same way if you damage the optic nerve, right? If you damage the cranial nerve to this guy, right, on one side of the head, then you will lose information from both left and right visual fields from that eye that it's attached to. This So far, so good? Okay, those are the easy ones. Now, <coughs> we cross at the optic chiasm, all right? And it, um, you don't perceive 
vision until that information, until those, those action potentials reach the occipital lobe for processing. Okay? So if that signal does not make it back to the occipital lobe, it does not matter if you have functioning eyes or functioning optic nerves, you will be blind. Okay? Or you will lose something. So let's say you had a tumor or a, some kind of bleed or damage that completely obliterated the optic chiasm. Okay? It's an extreme example, but let's just go with it. So you had something where you were basically going there and you snipped that optic chiasm. It's gone. The end results, even though you have fully functioning eyeballs, fully functioning optic nerves, fully functioning occipital lobes, is you are completely blind. Because that information is not passing from the eyes to the occipital lobe. That's fair? Okay. Now, remember that for each eye, it has left and right visual field information. And <clears throat> some of it will stay on the same side of the brain. And some of it will have to cross over to the other side. So. Once you get posterior to the optic chiasm, you are now talking about visual information from the, uh, the opposite side visual field of the side of the brain that you're on. Right? Because again, left visual field information goes to the right side of the brain and vice versa. So everything back posterior to the optic chiasm, this is called the optic tract. Okay? The optic tract. Uh, refers only to everything posterior to the chiasm. Okay? It's not the optic nerve. So understand your anatomy. Nerve, chiasm, tract, lobe. Okay? So if you damage somewhere along the optic tract on the right side of the brain, or if you damage the occipital lobe on the right side of the brain, you will lose information from which visual field? from the left visual field of which eye? Both eyes, right? Because remember that past the optic chiasm, you've had some information, that's some, some nervous information that's been sent on the same side and some that crossed over from the other optic nerve. But once, it's, once you're posterior to the chiasm, you've already had all that crossing over happen and you're, already, you're now focused as in Everything in this right optic tract and right optic uh, uh, occipital lobe has to do with the left visual fields. But again, that information came from both eyes. Okay, so what, what does that look like? Right. So let's say you have a tumor in the occipital lobe, or you have a bleed, or you have some kind of damage along this optic uh, optic tract. Okay, on the right side. Even though the eyes work, even though the optic nerves work, you will have lost vision, let's assume it's complete, blindness in the left visual field of both eyes. So it will look, you will not get information past your nose. Does that make sense? Not really? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, let's go. Yeah. I know there's a lot going on. So let's go through a, a few I'm more examples. Okay, a few more examples. Okay. Um, Let's say that you have uh, you have a, uh, a you have a lesion to the left optic tract. So locate yourself in the brain. When I say left optic tract, where am I talking? Let's assume this is left brain on your left side, and this is right brain on your right side. The left optic tract. 
is on the left side of the brain. Okay, so left optic tract means it's on the left side of the brain. And it is where in relationship to the optic chiasm? Posterior. So I'm somewhere back here. Where I am doesn't, for our purposes doesn't matter. Okay? So any damage to this optic tract here. Okay? What do you lose? The right visual field from which eye? Both eyes. Good. Okay. Okay. Let's mix it up. Uh, what if I say that you have uh, completely obliterated the left optic nerve? You've severed the left optic nerve. What have you lost? Sorry? Yeah. So, so again, be more. You're right. But let's be more specific. Okay. 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 Let's simplify it a little bit. But I get what you're saying. Right. So let's say you you you've severed your optic nerve on the left side. Okay. That is going to affect just the left eye. Okay. And you're going to lose the left visual field from the left eye, and you're going to lose the right visual field from the left eye because nothing from that eye is being sent back to the brain. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes. So if that is the case, if you sever the left optic nerve, will you still have a left visual field? What if you close your left eye? Because that's essentially the same thing. You still have a somewhat of a left visual field from that right eye, right? Because remember, because each eye has a left and a right visual field. Yes. You can rephrase that as a, can you see on that side of your nose? Yes. Right? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. What if you have a, um, if you have a uh, brain injury and you cause uh, damage to the uh, left occipital lobe? What do you lose? Sorry? From? Louder. You lose the right visual field from which eye? Both eyes. Or a lesion to the occipital lobe is this functionally the same as a lesion to the optic tract. All right? Uh, what, if you, what if you lose your entire optic chiasm? What was that? <laughs> yeah, your vision is over. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, it's over. There's no crossing. No. So again, eyes function. So if you lose your optic chiasm, okay, in that extreme example, um, do you, can your eyes still move? Yes. Yeah. Right. This is all related to, to cranial nerve two and the track. This has nothing to do with motor. Your eyes can still move. They still work. You can still blink. You can still do all the things your eyes do. The eyes are just fine. There's nothing wrong with the eyes. There's nothing wrong with the optic nerves. But whatever information they're sending is not making it back to the brain. So you are, for all intents and purposes, blind. Okay? Make sense? All right, cool. Very good. Okay, so what does this look like uh, clinically, diagnostically? 
Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure most of you have seen uh, most of this before. The Snellen charts, that's the one that you see in, in every doctor's and optometrist's office with the letters that are bigger at the top and smaller at the bottom. And you stand at a particular distance from it, and it gives you a standardized idea of what kind of distance you will be able to see at. All right, so that's acuity. Uh, visual field test is something you'll do when you're testing cranial nerves. Have you guys done that in assessment? Okay, so this is where you're looking the person face to face and you come in with something from the uh, periphery and you say, tell me when you can see this. Uh, tonometry. Tonometry is when you're pressing something up against the outside of the eyeball, you're testing for IOP, which stands for intraocular pressure. That's something that's going to be important uh, in uh, the um, observation of glaucoma. Okay, we'll get to that. Ophthalmoscope, right? That's the that's the instrument used to look inside the eye. There's a lot of really important things that you can you can tell by looking inside the eye. It's not just about eye function. Right? You can get some really valuable information about blood vessels and some other stuff. Uh, for example, you can get an indication that someone is diabetic by looking at the quality of the of the blood vessels inside their eyes. You can get indications of certain genetic disorders and other chronic diseases by looking inside the eyes. So give some valuable stuff. Uh, gonioscopy. Whenever the term goniometer or something, gonio means angle. Uh, so there you're measuring the angle of uh, what's going on in the anterior chamber. I said that we're not going to go in any real detail, but that relates again to, um, uh, to, my brain's not working, to glaucoma, excuse me. Sorry. I, I didn't want this 8 a.m. class. I really didn't. It was supposed to be at 9. Okay. Um, Defects of the eye. Okay, so let's start with the basic structural stuff. Uh, you've probably heard of these before. Myopia, hyperopia. Okay, myopia means nearsightedness. This person can see well, close, or far. Right, if you're nearsighted, you can see up close somewhat okay. You have difficulty with distance. Right, so you need glasses for seeing the board and driving and things like that. Hyperopia is the opposite. Hyperopia is farsightedness, so you see distance okay, but you need reading glasses. Right? Stuff for up close. Presbyopia. The prefix presby means aging. Right? So presbyopia means it's hyperopia, so difficulty seeing close associated with aging. And this is something that happens. This is why as you get older, you, a lot of people will eventually need reading glasses of some kind. Okay? Now, there are some mechanical things that are involved here, and I'll spare you the physics. Okay? I am not going to ask you about the size of the eyeballs, but, but I'll give you the general, just for your own interest, the general rundown. What, the, what you're talking about here is either a change in the actual shape of the eye, so it's either uh, too long or too short, uh, or an inability of the eyeball to change uh, um, when it loses elasticity. So what happens is rays of light are supposed to come in through the cornea, refract, which means bend through the lens, and then land right on the retina, where you pick up that information and you send that to the brain. If the convergence, so where those rays come together, is not right on the retina, then you can't focus properly. So if the beams focus too short, which is what happens in short-sightedness, myopia, <coughs> Um, it's different than what happens in hyperopia, where the convergence is beyond the, uh, where the retina is. Okay? Again, I will not ask you those things on the test, okay? but it's, if you're interested, it, it, it does speak to how 
glasses for for uh, for reading distance are entirely different in their in their makeup because what you basically do is you understand how lenses work and this uh, um, involved in there's some calculations you do uh, basically it's going to rebend the light rays as they go through so um, the lens in uh, for someone who's myopic is going to be biconcave versus someone who is hyperopic it's going to be biconvex. So it's entirely different. So it bends the, the light rays in a different direction in the attempt to have them converge on the retina. Okay? <coughs> All right. You can ignore that part if you like. Um, <coughs> astigmatism. Uh, astigmatism is actually a broader term. It's, uh, it's very, very common. Um, I, my optometrist friend said it's the most common uh, issue that you have with the eyes because it's so broad, right? It just means an irregular curvature in either the cornea or the lens. Uh, and so that could be you know, very, very minor, or it could be very significant. And there's nothing at all that says that the curvature in the right eye has to be the same as the curvature in your left eye. And so these are common reasons that people will need glasses. Okay? <clears throat> Strabismus. Um, you may have learned about this in, uh, in neuro or assessment. Uh, Strabismus can mean a bunch of things, but it means that there is the eyes uh, don't track together. Okay, so there's deviation of an eye uh, away from what should be normal parallel tracking to allow normal uh, focus. So there are a bunch of things that can cause this. It can be uh, neurological. So, for example, if you have someone that has that does not have strabismus, and then something occurs and all of a sudden they acutely do have strabismus, that is often cause for concern, okay? That could mean something like a stroke, for example. Now, you can of course have strabismus that you develop uh, that's not neurological like that, that is more developmental. It happens early on in life, and this is what leads to things like cross eye or, or lazy eye, okay? So the broad, so the, 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 the thing to take away for specifics is that if your eyes don't track together, right, so you don't get that, you lose that ability to have binocular vision, so your depth perception is impaired, and you will usually see some form of double vision, diplopia, because, uh, so you'll essentially see kind of uh, two forms of the same image just next to one another. All right, now, um, in a child, right, that can be caused uh, by something not necessarily neurological, but muscular. So remember the extraocular muscles that move the eyeball? Um, one could, for example, either be too tight or too weak, and it doesn't do the job properly. And so the mechanical movement of the eyes is not, uh, is not even, and so you get a, a form of strabismus. And there's subtypes. There's medial and lateral and all sorts of other uh, subtypes that we won't get to. Um, if it's in a child, uh, we want to uh, treat it as quickly as possible uh, to prevent amblyopia. What's amblyopia? Lazy eye. Good. Okay. So, how do you treat? How do you treat this? How do you manage it? Usually, the simplest way is with a patch. Okay, and you patch the good eye. So. Patch the, if you have one eye that is either tight or weak in the muscles, then you patch the good eye, and it basically is like eye exercises in a sense, in that it's forcing the eye that has the issue to do most of the work and follow and track uh, and, uh, and learn to do the work. And in, in many cases, it can eventually be developed to the point where they track very similarly, and then the eye patch is not necessary anymore, and you go about 
your life. Okay. Um, this, I said what diplopia is, right? It's die meaning two. Um, it means you double vision. So there are a bunch of things that can cause this. Um, the one that you want to be, of course, concerned with is if someone acutely develops diplopia, especially if it if it's, uh, coincides with any other neurological stuff like issues with speech or motor function or balance or anything like that, um, then you need to suspect things like neurological damage, like stroke. Um, but there are lots of other things that can cause diplopia, um, issues that have to do with uh, visual coordination and balance and drug toxicity and, and other things like that. Um, nystagmus. Did you learn about nystagmus in uh, in assessment class when you're doing uh, when you're doing uh, cranial nerve testing? Okay. So when you, you know when you, when you have your uh, patient, you do the H pattern. You have them follow you know, you follow your finger, follow a pen, whatever. Um, nystagmus means that you get to usually you get to one of those ranges and there's involuntary movement of the eyes. It beats like this, that beats on their own. So sometimes you can pick up on that in your cranial nerve assessments, as in, and it's often when you get to the extremes, up and away, down and away, whatever, uh, and it'll, you get to there and the eyes will tick, 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 beat on their own, okay? So that may or may not indicate uh, something pathological. It can, you know, it can indicate things like um, issues with the cerebellum or issues with other parts of that, um, of the control mechanism of the, of the, uh, of the eyes. Uh, and so it does, context does matter. Um, it can also be due to drug toxicity as well. So again, involuntary movement of the eyes. Uh, you can also see it in balance, uh, in balance disorders. So somebody who has vertigo, for example, if you look at them while they're having, while they're having their, uh, their attack of vertigo, often the, the, the eyes will be involuntarily moving. And without going into too much detail, um, if you pay attention to which direction they're moving, um, it can give you in insight into some of the ca potential causes of the vertigo. Another discussion, actually, next week. Okay, let's get into some uh, infections. All right. Uh, first off is something you've probably seen before, sty. Sty is uh, an infection of the hair follicle on the eyelid. So it's most typically uh, Staphylococcus, and there are a bunch of different potential species that could be. And it can be other bacteria as well, but most typically Staph. Um, it's an infection of a hair follicle, which means that you're going to get swelling, and it's bacterial, so you get a, an exudate. So this kind of whitehead-like appearance there, and then as it develops, it can get bigger and, and ooze of purulent exudates. All right. Um, how do you treat that? How do you treat a sty? What kind of what kind of what, what causes it? Yeah, antibacterial drops. Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, if you were to go in and uh, and and break that open, it can spread. All right, let's talk about uh, some other things that can cause infection. We're going to see each of these, conjunctivitis, trachoma, keratitis, kind of the next few slides. I'm going to come, going to come back to this, uh, and I'm going to come back to this. <clears throat> let's talk about conjunctivitis. So first of all, let's have an understanding of what the conjunctiva is. Okay? I said earlier, it is a protective mucous membrane that covers the inside of the eyelid and then folds back and covers the sclera. So I'll draw it from here. It basically does this. So 
and like so. It won't cover the cornea, but it will cover the sclera, and it's, it's fairly transparent, but it covers the sclera and the inner lining of the eyelid. So conjunctivitis, as the name implies, means inflammation of that conjunctiva. So there's a bunch of things that can cause that. Um, let's talk about the simpler ones first. It could be an allergen, right? So you get some kind of uh, allergen in the eye and it causes an irritation and inflammation. Um, it could be due to a chemical, as in something splashes in your eye and causes irritation. Uh, maybe you're um, prepping food and you know uh, hot pepper something or juice or whatever, uh, vinegar or whatever, gets into the eye and cause that kind of chemical irritation. So with any one of those, you're going to see you know, uh, the things you would expect with inflammation, so redness, uh, tearing, pain, itching, that kind of stuff. Of course, with the uh, causing inflammation, you can also, of course, have an infection cause inflammation. So it could be a viral conjunctivitis, um, in which case you would not see a purulent exudate, or it could be a bacterial conjunctivitis, in which you would see a purulent exudate, as you would expect with bacteria. So that leads us to pink eye. So pink eye is caused by typically a species, Staph aureus, common bacteria. Uh, gets into the conjunctiva and spreads and causes inflammation and the goopiness, right? The goopy stuff is the purulent exudate that you would expect with bacterial infection, okay? So um, I don't actually have even a good picture of the goopiness, but here is a conjunctivitis. Um, the, you see there's a lot of redness of this, the mucous membrane that covers the sclera, and if you notice, the eyelid as well. Right, because the, the conjunctiva folds back and, and covers the inside of the eyelid. <coughs> Just in case. Let's look at pink eye. <coughs> That's a good one. Oh, oh, that was an even better one. That's a good one. All right. So again, you have the uh, pus, right, the purulent exudate, which tells you pretty clearly that it is, uh, it's a bacterial infection, right? So how do you treat it? Antibiotic drops, right? Um, the other, I mean, the thing to consider here is, um, I mean, adults can definitely get pink eye. It's common in kids. <coughs> Why? Because they're gross, right? Because they're gross. <laughs> they touch everything and they touch themselves and uh, I mean, it's just their kids, right? They're petri dishes. So um, fairly common in kids and they've, of course, uh, I can say that, I have a young kid. Um, uh, spread from one eye to the other, right? Uh, and you would treat it with antibiotic drops, as you would expect. All right, now, um, there are some other things. I mean, anything that's contaminated, any other, I mean, any other way that you can get something into the eye, uh, that has bacteria on it could potentially cause this, of course. So uh, contaminated contact lenses, for example, uh, or um, sharing um, visine bottles and droppers and makeup, things like that. Anything that's going to go in and around the eyes, uh, towels, right, swiping your face uh, can do that as well. Um, of course, again, obviously treat it with antibiotics because um, it's a bacterial infection, but also ongoing uh, irritation from that infection can cause uh, damage to the cornea, which you don't want, because that can be permanent if it's significant enough. Speaking of which, there are other things that can cause uh, 
conjunctivitis, right, other infections. And two of the bigger ones uh, are uh, chlamydia trachomatis, a.k.a. the STI chlamydia, and Neisseria gonorrhea, a.k.a. the STI gonorrhea. So um, both of those can cause uh, um, uh, infection of the eye. Uh, both of those are consider, I mean, consider they're, they're traditionally sexually transmitted infections. Um, that means that both of these are, cla are classified as uh, vertically transmissible infections. Did you guys learn about um, vertical transmission in PATHO1? There's a whole list of, uh, of uh, an acronym to remember uh, the types of infections that can be transmitted vertically, which means from mom to baby. Okay, so say mom has um, the bacteria, chlamydia or, or gonorrhea, right, in the, in the vaginal tracts, and baby is born, gets in baby's eyes, and baby can have a nasty eye infection to start off their life. Let's see. And it looks something like that. Those are the kinds of things that you screen for and, and you can treat for with drops immediately after birth, et cetera, et cetera. All right. That also means that it can be uh, caused by auto-inoculation, which means somebody has it in the uh, genitals and they touch it and then you touch your eye and it is now transferred. You laugh, but it happens. Okay. Now, that is uh, from a, a, a gonorrhea, okay? And this is what's a, called a trachoma. So just let me, sorry, I'm jumping back and forth here a little bit. Uh, sorry. So slide 32. Uh, trachoma, which is that image right there. So the trachoma itself is what you're seeing. So this is an enlarged roughened inner lining uh, of the eyelid, okay? So a, a significant irritation, thickening, and roughness of the, uh, of the conjunctiva. As the name implies, a trachoma is caused by chlamydia trachomatis, okay? So <laughs> that's the end result of a prolonged or recurrent chlamydia infection of the conjunctiva. And it might surprise you to find out that that is actually one of the most common causes of blindness worldwide, acquired causes. Because if you're in a part of the world where you have this infection and you can't treat it properly and it, and it goes on and on and on, that right, is rough. And as you blink, it scratches the cornea and can cause permanent scarring and permanent visual impairment. Okay, so is it treatable? Yes, right? It's a bacterial infection. Um, you treat it as you would any chlamydia infection, uh, but it's, uh, it can have that significant cause. Okay? Again, you're not going to see a lot of that around here. It's, if you have appropriate access to, to healthcare, then, then you really won't see much of that, but it, it does happen. All right. Um, this, these two slides are basically scaring you into... Uh, uh, seeing that, that contact lenses, multi, like multi-use contact lenses, can get contaminated uh, and contain bacteria. What you're seeing is a, an agar plate and bacterial growth because it's been cultured. And this, again, don't even think about memorizing any numbers or species here. The point of this means that these are you know, studies that have been done that show all sorts of different bacteria that can be found commonly on contact lenses. 
So any of those organisms, you have a contaminated lens, you stick it in your eye, it can cause an infection, of course. Let's see where we're at. Okay, almost done. <clears throat> keratitis. So keratitis uh, is um, itis, inflammation of the cornea. So again, like, um, like the conjunctivitis, you can have a several <coughs> potential causes of keratitis. It can be chemical irritation. So you're working with the chemical or, or something and, and it splashes up in your eyes. Uh, it can cause damage to the cornea. Uh, that's why you have eyewash stations and things like that. Um, the, if somebody is experiencing keratitis, because of the nature of where it is and what it does, um, it's usually pretty painful, and the person will be photophobic, so sensitive to light. Okay? And the problem here is um, the more significant the damage is, and if it's prolonged, the recurrent damage or significant damage to the cornea can cause ulceration, so wearing away of the surface of the cornea, which leads to scar tissue formation. So if your body lays down scar tissue on a tissue like the cornea that is supposed to be transparent, it, can no long, it is, has the potential to no longer be transparent, which means that can cause a permanent impairment of, of vision. Make sense? Okay. Um, this can also be, of course, caused by infection, um, often viral, and the, one of the more common ones would be um, the herpes virus. So herpes simplex uh, spread from the mouth usually uh, to, uh, into, the, into the cornea. Uh, the infection that it subsequently causes and the inflammation can, can lead to keratitis. All right, last topic real quick, okay, glaucoma. So because I have this image up here, it makes sense. Uh, so glaucoma has to do with increased intraocular pressure in the anterior cavity, all right, which means here. So everything between the cornea and the lens. Remember, that's anterior as opposed to posterior, which is posterior to the lens. So in the anterior cavity, we have aqueous humor. Okay, That's that watery fluid. And it's supposed to be at a regular pressure. It's constantly being produced and it's constantly being drained away from that anterior cavity. All right? Now, if there's an imbalance in that, uh, if it's not being, it's usually an issue with drainage, if it's not being drained away at a regular rate, it accumulates and builds up in pressure and can cause some significant problems. When the pressure builds up, that's glaucoma. Okay? So there's either acute or chronic, and we'll talk briefly about the difference. Uh, again, like I said, what we will not talk about in detail is angles and things like that. So we'll make it as simple as we can. Someone that is developing glaucoma, one of the, if, especially if it's, if it's chronic, as in it comes on slowly, one of the most common so early signs uh, is when they're, looking at, uh, when they're uh, looking at lights at night, they'll see a ring or a halo around it. Okay. They'll start to lose their peripheral vision first, and if there's enough pressure in the anterior cavity, it can become painful. Okay? And that usually will develop over time with chronic glaucoma. With acute glaucoma, it's usually due to it's usually secondary to something else that's acutely occurred, as in an infection or a trauma or something else, post-surgical or something else that's happened acutely. And in acute glaucoma, as the name suggests, being acute, it develops a lot more quickly, and the likelihood for pain from that pressure development is much more significant. Okay? <clears throat> so, that's the acute glaucoma there. Again, I'm not going to ask you about angles 
uh, anything related to, we're not going to use the term open or closed, or sorry, open or narrow angle uh, in relationship to glaucoma. The only thing I want you to know is the difference in time. So acute happens more quickly, as the name implies. Quick increase in intraocular pressure of the aqueous humor, um, often secondary to something that's caused. So an infection, a trauma, a blow to the head, a post-surgical, something. And again, in either case, acute or chronic, the issue is with drainage of, 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 the, intra, of the aqueous humor. So if I skip ahead here, basically somewhere in here, this thing called the canal of Schlem, not on your test, uh, this is where the fluid drains out of that anterior cavity, anterior chamber. So you're producing it and you're draining it. And if you block that canal, it builds up rapidly. Okay, so acute, it happens more acutely. Chronic glaucoma is more a gradual scar tissue buildup-y kind of a situation where you start gradually uh, uh, preventing the, the outflow of that aqueous humor and building up pressure. Okay? So um, either one of them, if the pressure builds up too significantly, it can actually bulge backwards and cause significant uh, impairment of uh, visual function. It can actually cause damage to the optic nerve, which can eventually become irreversible if it's not managed appropriately. Um, oftentimes, um, for acute glaucoma, um, the treatment might actually be surgery, so to uh, um, emergency surgery to, to remove that blockage. In chronic glaucoma, because it happens slowly, it's usually managed with medication, so it's medicated eye drops that will help drainage and help decrease the pressure in the anterior cavity. Um, usually, people, before it was legal, people used to ask at this point uh, about marijuana because that would come up and people would use marijuana to, to treat uh, glaucoma. Right, so you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, so it, it was done, and people would get their medical cards so they could, I have glaucoma. Okay, sure. Um, so <laughs> there, uh, there is an effect where it does decrease the pressure in that anterior cavity. However, subsequent research showed that the medications that are available are just as good, if not better, so it really kind of fell out of favor for that actual legitimate use. <laughs> All right? That's more than enough. I will see you all next week.